I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial, political, ideological, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck, but that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. If you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at The Same Drugs, wish to support my work and access full video interviews, a great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy or on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content and engage with the comment section, subscriber-only chats and AMAs, and keep up with my writing as well. You can, of course, follow the podcast on Spotify and support this podcast directly there by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with a very timeless message online, and you can get your very own by going to meganmurphy.ca and clicking the shop tab. There's lots of other cool stuff over there too. Stickers, t-shirts, hats, my favorite things. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with the brilliant and witty Julie Bindel, my friend of quite a few years now. Julie was among the very first journalists ever to begin reporting on the trans infiltration of women's spaces. Way back in 2004, she wrote an article called Gender Benders Beware about the Nixon versus Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter case, wherein a man named Kimberly Nixon attempted to access a training group for women counseling victims of rape and domestic abuse at the shelter. When he was refused on account of a woman-only policy, Nixon filed a human rights complaint, and he initially won at the British Columbia Human Rights Tribunal, but Vancouver Rape Relief took the case to the Supreme Court, and in 2003, the court decided that that previous decision was an error and that Vancouver Rape Relief was not, in fact, guilty of discrimination and that they had the right to define their own membership, meaning, in this case, a women-only membership. 
So Julie Bendel wrote about that case for The Guardian back in 2004 and was viciously attacked and has been attacked ever since as a transphobe and then later, of course, a turf. But she hasn't left the fight. I've had her many times on my Feminist Current podcast. This is the first time she's been on the same drugs. I really enjoyed the conversation as always. She was on a vacation and very generously gave me some time, but she's sitting outside on a balcony, which is lovely, but there is a little bit of background noise on the audio. Without further ado, Julie Bindel. Julie, I am so happy to see you. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today from your vacay. Thank you for taking the time out. Always a pleasure, Megan. Um, so you were, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the first or at least one of the first journalists to ever write about the sort of trans infiltra- infiltration of women's spaces. And we're talking about men, of course, women can't infiltrate women's spaces. In 2004, um, mm-hmm. what did you know or think about transgenderism at the time? Well, actually, I got the story about Kimberly Nixon, a man who was claiming to be a woman who was demanding to train as a counsellor for Vancouver Rape Relief, which is, of course, your old stomping ground and where we met. And I hadn't at that stage met the women at Rape Relief, although they obviously um, had fantastic reputation for commitment to feminism and to fighting male violence and supporting women who were the survivors and victims of male violence. And so when I heard in 2004 that they had been put through years of litigation by this, what seemed to me very clearly a vexatious claim, a test case by the human rights fuckwits that pose as progressive when in fact they just are anything but, as you know fine well. And I heard that this was going to threaten the women-only services that were being run by Rape Relief. I was appalled, but to answer your immediate question, what I knew about the trans issue and transsexuality and the diagnosis of transsexuality as it was then, was that it was crazy, flat-earthism, regressive, based on 1950s sex stereotypes. It was about taking a scalpel and hormonal intervention, very often dangerous, always invasive, usually lifelong, to solve a problem that was purely social and manifested itself in mental ill health. So as a feminist, I knew that sex stereotypes and the pressure for women and girls in particular, but often for men and boys, especially weaker, younger men and boys, to adhere to them, to follow the rules, was made for a very tough life. And if, so like me, a lesbian, a feminist, I rejected... um, many of those requirements to move through the world as an acceptable woman, there's always a punishment. There's always a, a kind of um, hit back from, from many men and often women who want you to toe the line because it makes them feel better about themselves. So I just saw transsexuality, as I do now, as an extreme form of keeping everyone in their boxes and making sure that there is such a thing as a real woman and such a thing as a real man, and that if you step out of that box, then you're not normal and you need to be fixed. And what was the conversation happening around transgenderism? Was there any kind of public debate or was there a debate within the feminist movement at the time? Well, Sheila Jeffries had, of course, written about this previously, um, and she was in academia at the time, but very much um, a 
feminist activist and campaigner. But Janice Raymond was the one that I really learned from in terms of the theories around transsexuality, transgenderism, men claiming to be women, men demanding to be accepted as women. And Janice, as many of your listeners will know, wrote The Transsexual Empire, which was published in 1979. And I think that it was re-released in 1990 with a, with a foreword um, or in, sometime in the 90s. But that book is still very relevant today. Obviously, technology and medicine has moved on. Jan is, amongst other things, a medical ethicist, but she has been a campaigner against all forms of male violence uh, on the global stage for a long time. And so the conversation was merely um, about the harms to women, about the threat to women's single sex spaces that remember we'd had to set up only because of the prevalence of rape and domestic violence and child sexual abuse and sexual harassment. And we were always very clear that we wouldn't have had to have built those services brick by brick with no funding in the initial stages, were it not for the fact that we needed to either support women and girls in recovering from male violence, just as Vancouver Rape Relief does, or in many instances prevent that from happening in the first instance, which is the kind of changing rooms, um, bathrooms, sports facilities, school facilities, that kind of thing. And it was very much just about feminism and about what we understood about the prevalence of male violence. And interestingly, Megan, and you know this through your own activism and your own studies, that at that time when we achieved the right legally and you know across the board internationally to have sex-based rights that were enshrined in international law and our domestic law, we didn't actually get droves of men screaming from the rooftops about how hideous this was, that we were claiming they were all rapists, claiming that they were all domestic abuse violators. We didn't get that kind of pushback from men. I mean, there was lots of sexism and lots of jokes about women-only spaces, but they didn't go bonkers about how we were saying every single man is a potential rapist for the simple reason that we had a rape crisis shelter. Unlike, of course, the misogynistic trans activists today, who whenever you say we want to keep men out of single sex spaces, and that includes you trans identified men that say you're trans women, they then say you are taking a tiny, you're taking an example of a tiny minority and applying it to an entire community. No, we're not. We're saying enough men do this. Trans women, in inverted commas, are no different from other men in terms of whether they choose or not to to violate us sexually and otherwise. And so we're just keeping men out. So since then, since 2004, when you published that piece, and you were attacked over that piece back then even, um, of course, things have gotten much worse. Um, mm. From my perspective, as far as I can tell, things started really blowing up around the, you know, the mainstreaming of gender identity ideology and transgenderism and this insistence that we have to use so-called preferred pronouns, um, this concept of the trans kid and the transitioning of kids. It seems to me that it started maybe around 2015 or so. Was that, is that your experience kind of? Yeah, I mean, I think. I think we met that year, you and I, and 
certainly Canada that we've um, now fondly know as Tranada, <laughs> you know, to, to kind of repay the compliment you call us Turf Island, I understand. Um, I like that you, better, are, <laughs> <laughs> you were having lots of trouble then already. What yeah. was happening in the UK was Maria Miller, a conservative minister, she was minister for women and equalities, which is, always makes me laugh, decided that the first thing she would do in her job was suggest that in order to improve the Gender Recognition Act, which gave certain legal rights to people that identified as the opposite sex, she would just introduce self-identification to jump through those hoops of bureaucracy, of paperwork, as Owen Jones, the infamous Talcum X, um, referred to what was happening. And what she meant by that was remove the requirement for any medical scrutiny whatsoever, any medical diagnosis. And don't get me wrong, I do not accept the medical diagnosis of transsexuality. But there was not even that level of gatekeeping. They, she suggested, and of course the trans cabal, the trans activists, all leapt on this as a great thing that you could just self-declare as the opposite sex, live as the opposite sex, whatever that means, I don't know. I'm not sure I've ever lived as a woman, but somewhere, I suppose, somebody could be. <laughs> I don't think I have. <laughs> I and, think I've done it all wrong. In any case. <laughs> oh, definitely, we've done it wrong. But then, you know, magically, after six months, you're given a certificate which would allow you to basically get a new birth certificate, which is an abhorrence, lying on a birth certificate, I think, is... And abhorrence for all kinds of reasons. But we kicked off in the UK, particularly around then, and organisations were formed, groups of women on the left, such as the Women's Place UK, groups of women who were feminist, of course, who came at this just like I did, through a feminist understanding of male violence and about women's social subordination, institutionalised, not in any innate or natural sense, you understand, but we understood that that women were not we were not talking a level playing field and so many organizations started to be set up such as fair play for women which looked at sports and prisons and the threat of uh, trans ideology in allowing men into those spaces um women's place uk started to have public meetings and discuss this openly and the trans activists went berserk now on the other hand what you've got um, and this isn't, you know, this is a contested uh, point of view. Not everybody will will uh, agree with my take on this. But there were those people that identified as transgender, so men living as the opposite sex, who were sitting there thinking, well, I just want to learn how to crochet and marry Sean Connery. You know, I don't, uh, I don't want to go into a women's refuge. You know, I, I don't want to claim to be an actual real female as they were starting to say and they were silent and many of them because i went around the country talking to some trans people that weren't activists they were saying oh we're worried you know our rights are precarious because they knew that the right to live as a legal fiction was very precarious and they were saying we don't like what these loudmouthed, blue fringed kids are demanding it will all go horribly wrong and look what happened it's interesting because I remember, I think I first heard, you know, the phrase and, you know, this concept being discussed around transgenderism being a fetish for men in any case 
probably from Sheila Jeffries, who of course was talking about these things long before many were. Um, and now it, that's become, I think that's, it's almost, it's very close to being like a mainstream understanding that idea that a lot of these men in particular, the men who are transitioning during middle age, you know, 40, 50, 60, um, are autogynophiles. Um, and of course this huge debate and controversy recently broke out over a man named Debbie Hayton who lives in the UK um, and is, I've, I met him brief, briefly one time, but I don't actually know that much about him. Um, and he, you know, he's probably in his sixties or something like that. I think, is that right? Would you say? I, I don't know. I think probably approaching that. Yeah. Around yeah. that age group. And in any case, so he's married and he was recently interviewed by Andrew Doyle. And then you had him on your podcast. And I thought the interview that you did with him was really, really good. Actually, thank you for doing that. And I just, I mean, this, this, you know, there's, I don't think that there's ever been like a cohesive movement against transgenderism for se, per se. There's always going to be debates about various issues, but can you sort of explain what the crux of that controversy was? You know, Andrew Doyle got really attacked online. I didn't get very involved. So I sort of saw the sidelines of it and then left the internet. <laughs> um, and then uh, somebody, you know, like I think a bunch of people were attacked over platforming Divi uh -huh. to talk to him about uh -huh. transsexualism and his experience as a transsexual oh. yeah i mean i wanted to interview him because i wanted to ask him some hard questions yeah and i wanted to interview him so that i could put certain things to him such as do you consume sissy porn um what happened to your sexual interest in yourself as time mm -hmm. goes on what do you think about the fact that trans activists are um saying you know poor debbie you know don't be nasty to debbie so I actually wanted to do a different kind of interview with him than, for example, Janice Turner, who is a friend and a colleague, right. had done in the Sunday Times, but she's a you know very different approach to me. Um, and of course, you know, the guns were out. It was Bindle's capitulating again. Bindle's a coward. Bindle sits down and you know sucks the cock of autogynophiliac men. I mean, just really nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, but of course, these women don't come to this through feminism. They come to this, in my view, through, I mean, their single issue campaign, there's nothing wrong with that. And some of them are quite, actually quite deeply offensive and quite deeply homophobic and anti-lesbian, in my view. But anyway, I mean, the, the controversy was, began with Janice Turner, who's a journalist for the, uh, the Times newspaper. And Janice, um, did a profile piece on Hayton pegged to his book, which is just out the, transsexual apostle state, I think. Anyway, um, it's about his autogynophilia, which I think is very useful because I don't want to praise Hayton for saying I'm an autogynophiliac. I actually just want to actually add that to the store of information that we have about how these men come to, you know, get signed off by psychiatrists and surgeons as bony fide women living as the opposite sex. I think it's, I think it's another piece of ammunition. Andrew Doyle, who again, I know, I like, he's a friend. Um, he's a liberal kind of free speech 
type of man, as you know. He had Hayton on his programme, and I think that the auto cue, the the kind of um, text that goes across our screens when we're watching an interview before it begins, described Hayton as she. And so again, all the guns were out. Um, you know, how could you platform this sort of kind of affiliate? Now, obviously, Twitter is both real life and not real life. So what happens on there actually does happen to people. It is actually like somebody walking into a bar and screaming, you are a fucking cunt, you are a fucking raging dickhead, I'm going to rip your head off and shove it, you know, up your ass." But, you know, we know that it's behind a screen and we know that there's a lot of vitriol on those social media platforms that is quite unique to social media. Anyway, Andrew just got fed up with it, left Twitter for a short period of time, set up his own substack. And just wrote a piece then in Unheard, which I thought was a very useful piece, saying there are some extremists that just want to shout um, about how no one's as pure as they are. All this screaming of hold the line, never compromise. Mm. Yeah. If you'd actually been around for a long, long time, maybe for many years on your own, where perhaps you're trying to talk with people reasonably to stop yourself from being cancelled every time you want to go to an event and talk about rape and domestic violence and other feminist work, like the times I've been cancelled when I've been going to talk about the trafficking of women and girls, including in Vancouver, on the ticket that I'm transphobic, you're going to try to do things to reach a compromise. Maybe there are some people listening to this that will never compromise. They will literally go to their death having never compromised and they will feel really good about it. But I have compromised, including doing things and saying things and talking to some people that I now wish I hadn't, mm. saying things that I now really, really wish I hadn't, being in a position where I felt completely and utterly powerless in relation to them, humiliated, embarrassed, just desperate to get out of there. And I just think there's nothing noble in being cruel and sadistic to those of us that have no, not always held the line or been or been a hundred percent pure as they believe they have. Mm -hmm. The one shouting at Andrew, shouting at me, shouting at Janice. But at least we've actually never given up and have actually stayed in the fight for women's rights across the board and not just a single issue. That when that single issue perhaps is no longer as toxic or relevant because we've won the war. They won't be in it for the fight against rape. They won't be in it for the fight against trafficking of women. You know, where might they be? And so I think that's the problem. That hoo-ha was about saying, Hayton is a pervert. He's admitted he's a pervert. By platforming him, you are actually giving him a sexual thrill by, by having him on your podcast program. Um, purity is... Wow, it's a luxury conversation. It really is. It's, you know, you can afford to be pure and you can afford to take a constant bashing, lose your job, lose your home, lose your friends, lose your marbles, but at least you've held the line. So I, I'm not, I'm not very enamored with that kind of behavior. I'm really not. Well, in my perspective on that, particular controversy was that 
and you know, and this has been my perspective on many similar controversies is that a lot of these people don't understand what journalism is and what the point of journalism right. is. Because it's not about you're not only talking to people or platforming people that you like or agree with or who are good people. You that's just not how this works. And so and you know, it's just it, it's ever frustrating to me as well that people who I think otherwise would claim to advocate for free speech, certainly their own free speech, um, want to shut down, censor, you know, silence certain conversations because they're conversations they don't like and they don't want to hear those conversations. They don't want to hear this perspective. They don't want to hear from these people. You're right. You know, Megan, I don't know if you remember the first time I was ever on your Pod, which was probably when it was hosted on Feminist Current, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. good decade ago. Mm -hmm. I just spent a week with Dennis Hoff, the biggest pimp in America, uh, going around his brothels in Nevada, and I did that as a journalist, and I did that because I'm a campaigner against the abuse of women in prostitution, as are you, and I, yeah, I spent that time with him. Never once did I pretend I liked him. Never once did I accept a drink from him and never once did I pretend anything other than I was just looking at what was happening. I didn't say, haven't you got a lovely setup here, Dennis? Not once did I say anything that would lead him to believe that I was friend rather than foe. But in order to do that job and to get access to his brothels, I had to not begin every meeting with you're a fucking rapist pimp. Now, that's quite kind of straightforward in 101 journalism school. And I got all the information that I needed, every single bit of it from him and from his lackeys. And of course, was able to speak to the women in those brothels in a way that meant that Hoff was relaxed enough with me as a journalist, that he didn't hover over those women when I was talking to them. I mean, the prostituted women. So you make a really important point. And the other, the other thing that I want to say, which leads from, from that, is terms such as pervert. Right? Let's have a look at terms such as pervert, paedophile, nonce. Now, I'll use the word nonce as a joke. I'll say, oh, my God, look at my hair today. I look like a nonce that's escaped from a Pennsylvania prison. Can you explain to the non-British what nonce means? So nonce means um, basically someone who's in prison for sex offences, usually against children. Um, And it's become one of those words. The concept obviously is not funny. The concept is is not a joke. But the word itself is so overused, like pedo. It's so overused and it's so badly used that it's just become a joke. But using a word like sexual pervert suggests that there is a default position of men being terribly chivalrous in their sexual behavior with women, that the normal man, the regular man, doesn't ever do anything questionable sexually, that he doesn't have a shoe fetish, that he doesn't actually masturbate into his girlfriend's knicker drawer uh, when she's not in, that he doesn't do stuff like watch porn, watch gonzo porn, that sees women being abused horrifically. There are men that are just regular men, right straight down the line. And then there's Debbie Hayton, who is a confessed autogynephiliac. Now, I don't like these men. Do not get me wrong. I detest the idea of a man 
deciding he can legitimately live as a woman because he actually wants to toss off at the idea of himself being a woman. I find it repulsive, just like I find a lot of men's sexual behavior through their porn use and the normalization of violence against women repulsive. I I mean, I think that one thing that's misunderstood or left out of, again, this kind of controversy that comes up pretty routinely is that a lot of us, you know, like you mentioned during your interview with Debbie Hayton, this sort of debate that you did with Paris Lees, who's a, a British trans activist, and that he sort of bullied you into, he, he asked you if you thought that he could identify as a lesbian and you said yes. And that was, that, that debate happened a long time ago. And I don't know, when I first started thinking about and writing about transgenderism and gender identity ideology, I didn't know what to think about the pronouns issue. Um, I think I've, I had at some point referred to Caitlyn Jenner as she, Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner. Um, I am sure that I probably referred to Buck Angel as he um and people like blair white maybe as she and i'm pretty stickler about the pronoun issue and it does it does bother me when people pretend as though it doesn't matter i was listening to katie herzog's podcast blocked and reported with helen lewis recently um and i i like both of those women um but katie has this perspective that i don't share and that does bother me quite a bit which is that the pronouns don't matter at all. Uh-huh. It's really just a matter of politeness. Unless she's referring to a rapist, she'll use preferred pronouns. And that those of us who are very stickler about referring to men as he and women as she, regardless of how they'd like to be identified, are being silly, rude, transphobic. Um, there's more important issues that we should focus on. Just let them call themselves and be called whatever they want. What do you think about that? Well, I am much more of a stickler than I used to be. I still choose to refer to, for example, an old friend of mine, Claudia, as she, when I'm with her, Claudia transitioned in the 1980s from a young gay man, um, had a terrible history, transitioned effectively in order to try to keep his boyfriend who refused to accept he was gay and was massively let down by the medical professional from start to finish and has ended up with a broken body, regretted uh, the transition and has spoken out in favour of feminists such as myself for some years uh, since I first interviewed Claudia in 2003. And I don't want to add to Claudia's pain and Claudia isn't a trans activist and Claudia isn't out there shouting from the rooftops about having access to women-only services, so I make that decision myself. Um, Otherwise, I had an argument with my last publisher, who was publishing my book, Feminism for Women, about how I should refer to trans people by their correct pronouns, but make it clear they live as the opposite sex and they um, they, they had, they had, had other, ideas, other ideas, so I kind of wanted to get the book out and I compromised. And so I'm probably with you. I'm probably more with you than I am with, certainly than with Katie, um, and, and more so than, than with Helen. I do think they matter. And I've definitely uh, compromised in the past to make up for 
the fact that I was just seen as the devil incarnate and couldn't get my voice out anywhere about this issue. And I was alone. I was alone. Um, and and the Paris Lease, and that wasn't a debate. I felt a bit ambushed. Um, debate that began with, well, the, the public crucifixion that, that began with uh, Vancouver uh, right really from the, my piece about it. I asked uh, through uh, his publisher, through Lee's publisher, if I could sit down and have a conversation with him in order to try to move this issue on. Because at the time, some trans activists were willing to speak with feminists like myself. We were having um, public debates and discussions. Helen Lewis was involved in one of them before they shut it all down because they realized that actually we're quite nice people. And we sometimes even make the audience laugh. And sometimes we get on with trans-identified people. So Paris Lee's agreed. I walked into that uh, studio. He'd set up these burly gay men with cameras and voice recorders. I hadn't. I was just thinking we were going to have a conversation. I knew that it was going to be filmed. I, I knew it was going to be recorded. I didn't know it was going to be filmed. I was on the back foot from the beginning. I was crippled with nerves and anxiety. I didn't feel very well at that time. I felt very, very kind of quite, yeah, I was in a state of anxiety quite a lot of the time, working very hard, not feeling like I could properly hold it together. And I shouldn't have done that interview. I was completely and utterly bamboozled. And it was not because I made a choice to say to Lee's that I thought two men could be a lesbian. I just wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get out of there as quick as I can. I hated every second of it. And obviously after that, it was daggers drawn. I did have a discussion with some feminists who were much more hold the line, purity. Um, we'll die by the sword of, you know, purity on the trans issue. And said, oh my God, I regret doing that interview. And actually, these feminists were really understanding of it. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, they start, I think, quite sadistically just torturing, just just constantly bringing it up, sending the video a tiny clip round, which doesn't include all the other stuff where I'm saying that it is child abuse to transition children, that it is a completely bonkers diagnosis to say someone is transgender that all none of that of course is clipped just that bit and do you know what i don't actually care because i think i've probably done more to move this issue forward than they could ever imagine doing with their spite and their little kind of games of retribution and i just wish that they would kind of get a life really they don't have to like me they don't have to think i'm a real lesbian they don't have to think that I'm a proper uh, feminist, all of these things that they say. But, but I do wish that they would recognise that one day some of the stuff that they have said in moments of weakness will come back to bite them really hard on the backside. And then maybe they'll learn. I mean, I think that it's hard not to be frustrated when you've been in this fight for so long and as you said you were really alone in the fight for many years and viciously attacked for it 
Um, and now it's become it's become acceptable to talk about this. You know, the right finally mm. caught on to the fact that this is happening and they're talking about it nonstop. Um, and they have pretended as though they're the first to talk about it and they're the only ones doing anything. Um, there's a, you know, group of people who got involved fairly recently who are specifically concerned about the transitioning of kids and mm -hmm. teaching kids about gender identity ideology in school and don't know really much of anything about the history of the, the feminist debate on all this. Um, there are now people like, I think, Dr. Phil was on Rogan this yeah, week I saw that. <laughs> talking about it. And he said something along the lines of the term gender affirming care is a real misnomer. Um, and in fact, you know, it's, I, I'm, these are not necessarily his words, but you know, a form of medical oh. abuse, it's, it's harmful yeah. and it's called gender affirming care as though it's healthcare. And I, I don't know. I don't know quite what to feel about it becoming sort of spoken about by these, first of all, you know, men who never spoke about it for years and years and didn't support women like you who were trying to speak about it. And, and you know, I, I and many other women just struggled just to have an event, you know, yeah. just to find any Sorry. venue, like just a place right. where we could go so that we and could have a I? conversation about it and we didn't have any money like right. we didn't have money to pay for a venue i still you know right. i'm still struggling with this i'm still right. trying to you know i don't have money to i want to have events and you don't have money for the venue you don't sure. have money for the security sure. you don't have money to the, bring the women in and it's it's so hard and and i don't want to say that men never there have been men who've been great in this fight and in this yeah. movement but a lot of these men are behaving as though they've invented the wheel. And on top of that, sometimes criticizing the women who mm. were doing this for a long time. The Where feminists are all who are the doing this for a long time. This? Where are the feminists? Yeah, or it's feminist fault. You know, I was at oh, a yeah. free, I was oh, yeah. at a free speech event in Toronto recently, and um this guy, Bruce Parody, who's a big free speech guy in Canada seemed to find it very amusing that we were having this problem now because, you know, it was feminists destroyed men's spaces and we demanded access to men's spaces for so long and ha ha, look at what's happening to us now. What a disgrace. I mean, the thing is, I'm, you know, I'm with you on it. I, I resent it too. I just want to caveat something about what was going on in the UK at the time when I felt so alone. It wasn't because there weren't other feminists speaking out um, on feminist forums, creating their own conferences as, as, as early as 2012, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, Julia Long and others were doing that. But I was in the media and I was in the public eye and it was really hard because I would be going to these events if they weren't cancelled. I'd be going to industry um, kind of um, networking events, which I hate anyway. And that would be the only constant topic of conversation. You know, I would be written about in newspapers because I was a journalist and I had a high profile. So that that was the bit of me that was alone, not because there weren't other feminists doing really good work um, as feminist campaigners. And then that, of course, brings me to the, the conversation about the so-called term gender critical, which I've never, ever understood. 
No, I've never I identified myself in that way. And that. I hate the term. And I, we just talked about this it. before the podcast, but I was like, who did this? Who started this term? Why are, why are we being referred to in this way? Well, it's like, it's, I mean, our friend Holly Lawford-Smith, who's brilliant, and he was messaging me when I said, well, do you know who started this? I'm talking to Megan soon and, you know, we're interested. And she, you know, gave me a few pointers back as 2013, I think. And, and actually, you know, I remember Holly coming over when she'd published her book, a good book, Gender Critical Feminism. And I said, Holly, just call it feminism, feminism. What the fuck? I mean, gender critical, it's like saying I'm critical of Santa Claus. I'm critical of flat earthists. How can you be critical of something that feminists have always said? Gender is a fallacy and it's a mechanism by which you know, we are kept in place, otherwise known as sex stereotypes. And so gender critical sounds to me both twee and really irritatingly smug at the same time. Yeah. I can't I can't work out why I hate it so much, but I think partly it's because these women, the, the, the ones that are screaming, hold the line, you're all liberals, you're all, you've all let us down, you've given, you've given the word woman away. They're, they're, they're saying we are gender criticals, we are the vanguard, we are the ultras, without having, not all of them, but a lot of them, without ever having engaged in any way whatsoever with feminism. And many of them denouncing feminism, denouncing the rights that we fought, de denouncing the movement that gave them the rights that I'm sure they enjoy. I'm sure they or are relieved that they have, such as the right to abortion and divorce and the like, screaming about feminism being vile, having, as you say, introduced uh, the trans issue to the world. We're responsible for it. And somehow they're calling themselves gender critical. And then that, and I hate acronyms, Megan, I hate acronyms so much. Then that gets shortened to GCs. Then that gets shortened to critters. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck is this? I think, yeah, I mean, I think that part of what I feel bothered, you know, part of what bothers me is that, first of all, I just think I hate that gender and sex are conflated all the time. I wish we could just get rid of the word gender entirely. I think it's totally an unnecessary word. And, you know, a lot of these people who have been new to this debate, you know, men who came at this from a, you know, I'm a rational science-based, you know, this is how uh -huh. biology works. We're still, and sexologists too, we're still using gender when they actually meant sex. And I was sort of endlessly like, can you just say sex? This is very confusing because the trans activists are also conflating gender and sex very much to our detriment. Um, and so those people are not gender critical, you know, they're not feminist people, they don't seem to have a real criticism of gender. So that term doesn't make sense for okay. them. And then, you know, yeah, as you say, if you're coming at this from a feminist perspective, of yeah. course, you're critical of gender, because you're not, you're not attached to or supportive right. of these gender stereotypes necessarily. And I just, it, it just never made sense to me. No, it would be like saying, sexist critic sexism critical <laughs> right you know just anyway but obviously every woman has the right to refer to herself as she as she wishes but but for me there has to be a basis to our campaigning against 
transgenderism, transgender mm. ideology and the inclusion of men posing as trans women in our spaces, mm -hmm. or it just gets written off as bigotry. Now, I don't really care that people call us bigots because we say that we don't want trans people in our spaces. We know what we're right. The figures are there to show that this is, you know, women's fear and experience male violence um, to the degree where this is a reality for every single woman and girl on the planet. And so therefore we will continue to say, no, women only means women only. But you know, what on earth has it come to that there are people popping up saying that left-wingers are the cause of all of this. Now, trust me, I have many a critique about left-wing men, left some left-wing women, some kind of toe the line left-wing ideology, absolutely. But that unless you are a reactionary Trump supporter, you have got no right to talk about the trans issue because they're the only constituency of people that understand how vile this ideology is. And a lot of it is starting to sound a little bit like close to bigotry, very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable language that's been used around around it, the kind of complete focus on appearance, the appearances of men that claim to be trans women. Um, I'm not talking about when they're in fetish gear. I will scream from the rooftops about how dare they, how dare they dress in this fucking shit. I'm talking about some of the cruelty that is similar to some of the cruelty that I've seen from those that just want to kind of, I don't know, have fun taking the piss out of people that are different from them. Now, I'm not saying that that defines trans-identified males, not at all. But I think some of the language, the constant groomer, pervert, pedo, weirdo, look at the fucking state of him in the bad wig. You know, we've all had these conversations when we've been sitting around a bar, and I will mm -hmm. continue to do so. But I think it's not helpful to begin your critique with the assumption that every single one of these men is out to sexually assault a woman and to perv on a girl in a bathroom. I just think we need to keep all of them out because some of them do, just like other men. We never said all men want to come into women's bathrooms in order to perv on and assault women and girls. We never used that argument. We said enough of them do to justify your saying none of you come in, not one. Where do you think we are in terms of this debate? I mean, there has obviously been progress made in terms of opening up the conversation in public. There's pushback against various legislation in the U.S. and the U.K. Canada is just beginning a little bit to push back on the transitioning of children at very least. Um, and but again, you know, like I it's it's hard for me to not feel frustrated about who is talking about this now and where the conversation is uh, going, who's dominating the conversation and who's being erased from the conversation. I just wonder where you think, like, are you happy with where the debate has ended up or where it's headed? Do you think we've made progress? Well, I think now that there are some shifts in Tradita, um, which there clearly are because some friends have been sending me the odd article about somebody speaking out against this ideology about the transing of children um, that it's now starting to filter through to the normies and the regular citizens and not just those 
um, particularly engaged in these issues. So I think that's a really good sign. I think legislatively in the UK, we're winning lots of cases because we're taking lots of cases against universities, against employers, those that have discriminated against women and men um, who have dared to um, reject transgender ideology and speak up for the reality of, of biological sex. Mm. Of course, again, they're always framed as, you know, gender critical views are, you know, um, you know we have the right to gender critical views. Well, first of all, you mean sex-based, you know, reality, and it's not a view. The fact that there are two biological sexes is not a view. Yeah. But I think that we're actually getting there because there are many, many more people who aren't complete extremists who just want to exterminate everyone from lesbians through to men that dare to kind of look a bit feminine. Um, they are talking about this and saying, this has taken a hold on every single institution Stonewall, our UK protection racket organisation that used to be a kind of very conservative gay male run organisation with the odd mention of lesbians, you know, obviously has caused a lot of damage in this country. There's GLAAD in the US. There's all kinds of organisations that you've got to put up with in Tranada. Yeah. Um, and I think that there now is an open conversation. You know, there's a crack of light coming through the open door which will allow those people to speak out who just want to kick back against the doctrine that they, that's they that been forced upon them. So I think we're going in the right direction and we just need to support each other and to make sure that those that can't speak up as loudly or as freely as you and I can and others, we need to really stand up for those women and and help, help ensure that one day they can, even if it's a few words here and there, even if they don't put their name to what they're saying, that we can enable that conversation to happen amongst others that, you know, don't haven't already got their feet firmly in the, the hot water. Yeah, well, and that's why I think in-person events are so pivotal and not just talking about it online, not just tweeting about it, not just posting Instagram videos of trans identified people doing crazy things or saying Absolutely. crazy things because you know that's been my my experience has been that those when we do events in person and women come when men come too it's so galvanizing and people feel courageous and they see each other in person and they right. can speak about their concerns and they can maybe form their own groups and organizations and start doing some activism of their own on this issue and I just, I'm always, I'm, you know, events, as you know, about this issue are so stressful and really actually scary, but um, that's why I sort of keep fighting to do them because I think that it really makes difference, a difference for people. Um, you recently started something called the, the Lesbian Project. Can you, I know you've got to go. <laughs> Can you explain I I mean, what that is? I'm going to send you a link for your show notes. Okay. Um, I'm now more scared than I am of the trans activist because my partner's just come in telling me that we're supposed to be going out in 30 seconds, be on Megan's pod. <laughs> so that's Scary. the Harriet. Scary <laughs> Harriet. <laughs> and the Lesbian Project is set up so that lesbians don't get, go away, don't get <laughs> marginalised and subsumed within the LGBTQQI2 spirit plus, plus, plus ridiculous soup that we have at the moment. We... We are separate beings. We are women, which makes a difference in terms of the way that we should be dealt with, given space to, researched, um, and the like. 
And so, yeah, I'll send you something over for your show notes. It's I set it up with Kathleen Stock, who is going to be in Canada very soon mm -hmm. doing a, an event. And I know you know her. And so, yeah, hail the lesbians, hail the feminists and hail all those women speaking out for women's rights. And you, Megan, particularly, you know how much I love and respect you. So thank you for everything you're doing. Oh, thank you for everything that you've done. You're, you know, you're the best. I've, I'm so glad that we've managed to maintain a friendship and a working relationship over these years. And um, I'll link to all of this in the show notes, of course. But I, your podcast is over on Substack for those watching. It's great. Subscribe to Julie's Julie Bindel on Substack. Um, and have a lovely rest of your your vacation over thank there. Thank you very much. And talk to you soon, Megan. Bye okay, bye. take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon at patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, subscribing on Substack at meganmurphy.ca, or donating directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. <laughs>